This is Ron Oral, and you're here with the Deals Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm really excited to report that we have Encora Advisors Jim Chadwick back with us again. Encora, for those of you who don't know, was formed in 2003 in Cleveland, and Jim has been around with the firm since 2014. And since that time, Encora has engaged in many, many activist campaigns and launched or participated in multiple proxy contests over the years. Uh, for example, you yeah, probably one of the better known campaigns was Encore and two other activist funds launched a successful campaign that shook up Bed Bath & Beyond C-Suite and Board in 2019. And in 2020, Big Lots added, Big Lots, another large retailer, added two candidates nominated by Encore and another activist to its board in the settlement, ending a change of control contest there. So uh, some pretty high profile, successful campaigns under Encore's belt so far. So this year, Encora has three separate proxy fights underway. And uh, I guess probably the most high profile of that is uh, Kohl's, the discount retailer, where Encora and uh, three other funds, two of which participated with Encora in the uh, Bed Bath & Beyond campaign from 2019, are seeking to take control of the board of Kohl's. And then uh, separately, Encora wants to elect four directors to the board of wealth management and tax company Bluecora. And it has four candidates up for election for to the freight and logistics company Forward Air. So three proxy fights for 2021 for Encora. Busy, busy, busy. Thanks, uh, Jim, for taking a little time. I really appreciate you uh, speaking with the Activist Events in Today podcast. Sure. Happy to be here. Okay. So first, maybe, Jim, you could tell us a little bit about a background about Encora and your role at the firm. I suspect that you're uh, kind of uh, lead or heavily involved in the activist investments. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Encora, as you mentioned earlier, was was started in 2003 in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, today, the firm has about $9 billion of AUM spread out among a bunch of different categories, including fixed income, long only, and family wealth products, uh, retirement planning services, and embedded within all that is our alternatives group. And so our alternatives group is where hedge funds reside. I'm the managing director of that group. In, within it, we have three separate hedge funds, two of which are, are heavily engaged in activism. We have a we have a multi-strategy fund that was our original fund, and then we have an, a dedicated activist-only fund, which actually I joined the firm in 2014 to help launch with uh, my partners there, Fred DeSanto and Brian Hopkins. And so that fund has been in business since since 14, and 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 I think as we've grown that that fund along with our multi-strat, we ramped up our activist efforts uh, along, along the way. We have a firm has about four offices around the country today. Probably we still primarily are in Cleveland and and totally employee owned company. Okay, super. Thanks, Jim. So I think our audience would be interested in a little bit of information about your background before Encora. And uh, you worked uh, for Ralph Whitworth and David Batchelder at Pioneer Activist Fund Relational Investors before you joined Encora. And you know I've written numerous stories about uh, relational and. Not only its activist campaigns, but its uh, hugely huge influence at, uh, to kind of lobbying on Capitol Hill and uh, at the SEC to kind of create the world we have today for activist investors. So tell us a little bit about that experience. De- definitely, uh, it did. I mean, is the, the short answer. But so I joined the firm in 1999. Relational had been around a few years at that point. It was still relatively small, maybe you know 300, 400 million dollars when I joined. Uh, as you mentioned, Ralph Whitworth and David Batchelder were the two managing partners, both of which had come out of that that hostile Raider uh, environment of the 80s. Both worked for Team and Pickens. David was the president of Mesa back in the 80s, and Ralph was, you know, effectively Boone's right hand. And uh, you know, 
when they started their own firm here in San Diego back then, you know, to start relational, I think they wanted to create a modified version of what they were doing in the eighties that no longer is really possible kind of post poison pill uh, legislation. And so they created what they first described as like a premium free LBO strategy, which later was modified to more of what they called relationship investing. And so out of it, you know, I think was born the idea of activism as, as we know it. They weren't the only ones that were doing it then, but they certainly probably had the most, at least probably the only pure play focused fund of what we think about today, where we see a lot of activist funds. They're the first that I can think of that really was an activist only manager. And so I was there for four years watched the firm grow significantly, got to you know, spend a lot of time with, 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 with Ralph and David and John Sullivan, one of the other partners. Uh, and so, yeah, through them, I, I developed a passion for doing this and, and obviously something I've carried through my career. I think the style of investing, the way they go about doing what they do, I, you know, it, I looked at the, the similarities and differences, similarities, obviously the style of activism we engage in and, and the approach to it is very similar. I think it's a constructive form where we're looking to do a lot of things behind the scenes first and not, not necessarily public. And in fact, I think there's a lot of situations where even Encora is, is activist in a name that has, that we don't file in that we're never over 5%. And we're able to do everything behind the scenes. And that's definitely something relational did all the time. But I, I, obviously, the difference is with Encora, um, you know, we're running more of a traditional hedge fund. So we're actually hedging investments and, and, and running it more as a portfolio uh, of companies versus relational, which is a little bit more one off in nature and not, and not hedged. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah. No, anyways, I thought maybe we could talk about some of the campaigns that you're working on right now. And I've noticed a little bit of at least some aspects of the various campaigns are similar. And uh, so I thought maybe we could talk about Kohl's and the discount retailer, which uh, the deal had put on our on our watch list of potential companies that could be targeted by activists already uh, a few years ago and kind of been waiting to see if anybody would launch a campaign there and lo and behold. So a big part of your campaign there involves urging, I mean, it's it's one aspect of a number of different things you want, but urging Kohl's to sell and lease back its real estate. And Kohl's owns about 30% of its stores, plus its headquarters, most of its distribution and fulfillment centers. And I noticed that this was something that you were successful in your efforts in campaigns at and correct me if I got this mistaken, but I believe that you were successful in your campaigns at both Bed Bath & Beyond and also Big Lots to kind of drive those companies to sell and lease back some of their real estate. So I guess one, why do you think that would be important for Kohl's to do? And is this kind of a general trend that a lot of retailers have sold their real estate and leased it back? And yeah, maybe just talk about uh, that aspect of the campaign. Yeah, I, I think you know the common theme, obviously, the sales, lease back, and all three being retailers in the case of Kohl's. As was the case with Big Lots, the real estate value was a significant portion of the market cap today. Um, in the case of Kohl's, we believe there's north of seven billion of real estate value there that is uh, that is un- that can be monetized. And so I, I think where it comes into play with with retail specifically, I mean it's it's nothing new per se, but I think what is new is as as you know last several years as retail has fallen out of favor and a lot of retailers are trading at very low multiples, you know, like big lots where I'm involved, you know, trading less than probably three times EBITDA. And so when you see something like that, where you have an asset that is getting effectively no value from the market, oftentimes unknown by the market because the real the disclosure requirements, you know, and, you know, under gap are very limited in terms of what you have to say about your real estate value or our current mm-hmm. market value real estate. So here you have a situation where you have a stock that's trading, at a really low multiple, and that, that's true of Kohl's. We started this campaign too, and then you have real estate value that's a significant portion of the overall valuation, but 
most likely not getting any any credit from the market in general. And so it, it becomes something where to us it's an incremental value that can be added here, you know, that shareholders can benefit from. I mean, it doesn't have to be used, you know, just for buybacks. There's there you can be used for deleverage. There's a bunch of different opportunities. In the case of Kohl's, you know, that I think that 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 pathway remains to be seen. But it certainly, you know, the same groups that we've worked with in, in both in both Bed Bath and Big Lots are certainly aware and have looked at this coal situation very carefully. And so we do know that there is interested parties that would like to execute this type of transaction. And and the company to date has done some very limited versions of the sales leaseback. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes as the campaign goes on. But I think if we were looking at the campaign in pieces, I think the sales leaseback is like the low-hanging fruit, the short-term piece that it is significant. But, it, you know, we're looking at building long-term value that's a part of it. And the other part of it is just, you know, effectively changes on the board level that really oversee the business better, improve the issues that have led to performance there for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So this is fascinating. So at Encore, I guess one of the things you guys do is you dig into these businesses beyond which, you know, you could even find in securities filings and sell side analyst reports. And for example, identified this value of the real estate. And uh, you also do research to find out whether somebody would be interested in buying it and leasing it back. And all these kind of things, you know, whenever I talk to sell side analysts, uh, they're often struggle to talk, tell me anything about the real estate value of these companies. And that's an interesting point that it's not not disclosed. So anyway, so that's a, that's an interesting often, aspect of acting. Can check it out with the sell side to know like if it really is not baked into the prices. Well, like big lots, I remember specifically talking to a couple of sell siders and saying, do you, do you know if there's significant amount of real estate value here that that these guys could monetize? And they're like, no, I don't think it's anything material. And I was like, okay, you know, I mean, you start, those are things you're looking for a sort of a general view that, that there isn't real value there on this asset that you know is very valuable. And then you're, you know, you're looking for ways to bring that to market. And we did a calculation that big lock shares have been on kind of a tear since uh, they engaged in that recent sale leaseback transaction. So I will be continuing to follow big lots going forward. So I wanted to ask you about another interesting aspect of commonality I've seen in some of Encora's campaigns. And so I find that you have, you guys have been pretty successful at getting key former executives to participate in your campaigns. For example, in your campaign at Forward Air, this is this logistics freight forwarding company that's kind of very specialized and uh, transports kind of large freight from airport hangars in one city to airport hangars in another city. They uh, You nominated the Forward Air's founder and its ex-CFO. And yeah. I feel like you guys have nominated other people that worked at your targeted companies in your director slates as well. So I guess one, you know, how do you get these these very important people, you know, former top level C-suite employees at the companies that you launch campaigns at to participate in your slate? And I guess what does it say about the companies if you're able to bring these these kind of director candidates on board? Yeah, I mean, it, it's when you're dealing with like Ford Air, for example, with the founder of the business, the ex CFOs is a widely respected industry executive. I mean, it shows that people that know the asset really well, you know, if they're willing to go into an investment group that's, that's going to be activist, they're willing to put themselves on the line that, that, that they think there's a real opportunity there and the business is likely being mismanaged. And so I think for us bringing in experts like that, obviously part of it, it actually helps when we're working on the analysis itself and putting together the thesis. We're working with these same people to do, to make sure that. I think where we're, where we're going with valuation or we're going with, you know, the activist strategy, that is something that actually we can fully vet and, and validate. Also bringing them in there, having somebody that can actually implement it. I think portfolio managers or activists in general, you know, a lot of us have experience in the boardroom, but 
few of us have actually really been operators. And so we do like to bring effectively like an operating partner in with us that is more day-to-day knowledgeable about what would happen in the operations in the business. So it's either the business that's the target or it's the business that something similar that they would have a good, a good perspective on. And so even when you look at this, the current slate at Coles, Tom Kingsbury, who's actually an ex-employee of Coles and then became a, a runaway success as the CEO of Burlington. He's, he's an all-star in that discount space. And so having on our slate here, the same, same thing. So that's somebody who just knows the business really well, who's executed at a really high level, who's widely respected by other investors in the street. And so we're trying to bring people like that to the table when we're getting involved. It also, you know, ultimately most of these campaigns end in settlements. And so you're also wanting to put your best foot forward with your best people. And those are oftentimes the ones you're using, you know, kind of at the finish line. I'm fascinated. I'm wondering what comes first, the chicken or the egg. You know, we often see kind of ex-CEOs or founders who have left companies and then watch them deteriorate and want to come back and influence the the business that they left behind. In, in these situations, is it often plant a launch a campaign and then you go and field and find these people? Or is it that, you know, maybe they want to do something, they come to you. You know, you don't have to talk about this specific situation, but when you kind of bring in these uh, founders and ex-CFO type people, is it often that they come to you and they're saying, we don't know how to run a proxy fight. We don't know the logistics of these things and the connections with the proxy solicitors and the PR and all this stuff. Can you do this for us and we'll partner with you? I guess what comes first, you or the ex-executives? I mean, I think for activists in general and for us too, I would say it usually goes one of two ways. It's usually you're finding the opportunity as the activist and you and you know that there's ex-executives of the company that while you're doing your your diligence on the company, you've reached out to 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 speak to Boo about the business, get their thoughts, and then through those, through those through those interactions, you end up determining, you know, there could be a much, much bigger campaign here and bringing these people with you to help execute it. I mean, the, I, I think you're finding, usually for us, we're finding the name first and then, and then the person. Um, in the case of, of Forward Air specifically, Andy Clark, somebody we worked with a lot. So it, it was a situation where we put Andy on the board of Element Fleet. That's the uh, ex-CFO. You put him on the board of Element Fleet, right? Another campaign. Yeah, go ahead. 2018, and then we put him on the board of Big Lots last year. And so he's one of the guys we've used frequently as a director. He's, he's really good in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. So it was something where, obviously, we know what his skill set is. We've known Andy for over 20 years. And, and you know, with this company, when we first identified it specifically, it was based on the stock trading down significantly and then not recovering with the rest of the group. So it really stood out. And so it's a name that we looked at and... I've talked to him about in the past, and it's one of those things where it's like, well, if that thing ever ends up really dislocating from the group, it might be something to talk about. And I think that kind of a conversation then turns into something much bigger. That's the primary way it happens. The other way I've been involved with it or seen it happen is where you're a shareholder in a company, an activist, you're starting, you know, starting to either put, exert pressure, and and all of a sudden people start coming out of the woodworks, and that that includes former executives and others that that reach out to you directly, saying, hey, you know, I. I I agree with everything you said, or, or you know, hey, we, you know, if you want to try something else, yeah, I'd, I'd love to work with you to, to do this. And so I, it's usually one or the other, but I know we've done both. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's fascinating. And clearly, you guys have developed a reputation of governance focused activism that helped to bring in some of these types of people. So, okay, so let's say, uh, you know, that the deal, we'd like to talk about deals, obviously. So I wanted to talk a little bit of one aspect of your forward air campaign which is this idea that you wanted them to stop making acquisitions and consider divesting its intermodal business. Now, the intermodal business is a smaller trucking business that often transports freight to and from railroads 
And it's apparently there. My understanding, if tell me if I'm correct, there's kind of no relationship really between the core business, which is the large freight forwarding business from airports to airports and city to city, and with the smaller trucking business. It sounds like it has synergies, but there's no real synergies. And you think that they should consider divesting that? Why? Yeah, I mean, starting with the synergy argument before we get into the other pieces. I mean, we definitely do not believe there are synergies between those two assets. Effectively, from what we can see. You know, there, there's there's no overlap in terms of volumes between the two networks, between their their core LTL expedited LTL network and what they're doing on their intermodal, which is more drayage in, in general. Secondarily, there's no customer overlap, and then there's also appears to be no overlap from the standpoint of a sales, you know, it's like your sales team or your operations people. So it, it's just something where across the board, you know, it, I think having those two assets together by themselves, other than adding scale into the the company as a whole, it does not provide any synergy benefits that we can see and nor have ever been demonstrated by the company to date. I think additionally, there's nothing wrong with that business. That's not a drayage or intermodal is not a bad business at all, but their core air, airport to airport network, as you referred to at the start of the, of the call, is a, is, is a very high margin, high return business. When, when Andy Clark was there and Scott, Scott, you know, was there back, back in the early 2000s, when it was a standalone airport to airport model, basically, you know, this is a company doing almost forty percent plus ROIC and 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 really high you know uh, EBITDA margins as well. And and since that time, effectively those the, you know I think today the the returns are less than fifteen percent. The margins have dropped considerably. They're operating at an OR of over ninety percent, which is which is pretty poor. Where it was under eighty is like the you know it's it's that's effectively the opposite of your margin. Um, in the logistics space. So, I mean, it, it's an asset that as they've diversified in, in intermodal is something that, like I said, it's a fine business, but it's a lower margin, lower return business. I think when you combine a lower margin, lower return business with, with a gem, you're just making a gem less worth less. And that's, mm-hmm. that's effectively what we're, we're concerned about. So we don't think additional acquisitions, capital spend on the, on the intermodal assets makes sense. And, and if anything, we think divesting it would be the, would be the way to go. But. They just bought a uh, small company that is part of to add to the intermodal that, that smaller trucking business after you you launch your campaign. So I mean it, it's it's kind of insignificant in the big scheme of things. But you had, you'd wanted them to stop making acquisitions to kind of reevaluate their assets overall. Doesn't sound like they're listening to you, at least yeah. not yet. <laughs> I I don't think you know we we had we've had a lot of dialogue with that management team and 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 a couple of the board members. I'd say that's an area we have not found any common ground yet. So it's, mm-hmm. but it's something we don't, we definitely do not believe is the best use of capital. All right. Well, we'll be paying close attention to the uh, forward air situation and your campaign with the uh, founder and ex-CFO there. So that's quite interesting. We have a little bit of more time. So I thought maybe we could talk about your third proxy contest, which is forward air. You're seeking to install four directors at Blue Cora. You're also seeking to install four directors. And so Blue Cora is a wealth management and tax company and a large presentation letter. One small aspect of it that I thought was quite interesting because it kind of overlaps a little bit with this thesis you have at Ford Air, which is you want them to consider divesting their tax act, tax software business. And uh, so tell us a little bit why you think that they should divest that unit. And also curious about, I believe you filed a lawsuit to challenge the company's bylaws. Uh, What's that all about? It, the, the, I think the lawsuit is more preemptive, you know, it's uh, preventative in terms of the the kind of actions they've taken against against us, trying to throw up obstacles to nominating directors, and they, they've thrown up an awful lot, which I think is unfortunate. 
specifically to the tax act asset in terms of why sell it. I, I think it's a similar answer to the last question, which is mm-hmm. that the business, despite the fact they keep saying, we think there are synergies between these two businesses, at some point we're going to demonstrate it. And now it's like, we're going to do that in, in June or whatever at their analyst day. They've never provided any real synergies. We've talked to a lot of people that cover the company that know the company, former executives of the company. I, I don't believe there are any. So it, it, it's something where it's a business that does not need to be together with the other. and to us, it's something where effectively it's just an aggregation of, of assets. And this is a company with extremely high corporate costs and corporate executives that aren't running the actual divisions. And so from their standpoint, they probably want to, they want as much, much sales and EBITDA as possible to, to keep getting paid and, and the underlying businesses themselves so that effectively don't make sense being together. The tax stack business is one that the asset, I, I think there was a time several years ago where that was considered their best asset. And then as they started getting more and more into this asset management business, this RIA business and rolling it up. That business, the one that I think has the most, it, it, in general today, is the most interest from, from the market, both from other participants and just general growth and, and kind of momentum behind it. The tax act piece, on the other hand, is something where it was effectively at a price at a pretty significant discount to TurboTax. And then over time, they've continued to take pricing up to the point that the differences in, in cost became rather immaterial, which which kind of put them in sort of a no man's land there. And then last year, that with what happened with COVID, the tax season getting delayed and pushed back and that hurt them could happen again this year. It's something where in general, we just, we the company has some leverage. We think it's much smarter for them to focus on the core RIA business, which we think is a lot more valuable, has a lot more optionality, a lot more growth potential. And to us, it, it the tax piece, the tax tech piece creates a distraction that I think they could monetize it at a pretty good valuation. And, and it would definitely be transformative for the business. I mean, is that something you think that somebody would be interested in buying the Tax Act software business, or is it something that could be spun off on its own? Or how would how do you envision? I think there that- would be buyers for sure. They have, they'd have to run a process, but we definitely do believe there are buyers, both potentially financial buyers and strategics that I think would make sense. There's been real interest in shown in some other assets, the Credit Karma situation that wasn't too long ago here. We know that that was a very crowded process, and there was a lot mm-hmm. of buyers there. I think. Tax Act would fit very nicely with that same group. And so if they were to go and, and try to shop the asset, I think they wouldn't have a problem finding someone. And again, this is one of these situations where the tax ad unit, the combination of this uh, wealth management and uh, tax software company, it's kind of the, the tax software business is hit, value is hidden in the overall valuation of the company. Is that kind of well, the- well, One or the other, either way, it's like hard to value because you got two totally different businesses. And, and so it, I, I think it's difficult to really value the company effectively. And, and I think being pure play one or the other, and then I, I don't know a shareholder that doesn't think it should- it should be the tax act piece to go if, it, if it's either one of them, but together it just doesn't make sense. And and look, they have challenges across the business. That's part of the reason I think there's a sense of urgency on the campaign is they've had a lot of attrition on on the asset management side. A lot of people have left the business. A lot of people are leaving the business, and and there's a lot of things that are not being done by the the corporate team there and the board that are impacting the overall valuation of the company today. And we're not running a control slate, but our intention is by putting people on the board that have real experience in the RA world and. That includes our CEO and Chairman Fred DeSanto, who certainly knows that business as well as anybody. I think it will make a significant difference because they do have damage control to do there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's gonna that's a really interesting campaign too. We'll be watching that extremely close. And so we are out of time. I just want to thank James Chadwick. We've been talking to James Chadwick of Ancora Advisors, and we really appreciate you taking a little time to chat with us. I'm happy to do so. Thanks again, Ma. You've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral.